Dave Max Cork History Matters brought to you by Red FM. Gabriel Doherty of UCC, thank you for joining me for this Cork History Matters podcast, an ongoing series of conversations you've been kind enough uh, to offer me the inside of your brain and all of the, the research and the work and the studies and the reading that you've done over the years. Actually, you know what? Maybe at the outset of this, I, I don't know if I've inquired off you. Where did your uh, interest in history uh, grow from? My, the very first book, Irish book on Irish history that I ever read, were the two. Uh, the first was Dorothy McArdle's Landmark Study of the Irish Republic, published in 1937 in effect, the Fianna Fáil Bible of, of Irish history. Uh, and the second was a very favourable biography of de Valera, uh, written in the 1950s. So uh, in terms of my initial exposure to this period, it was very much on, as it were, the pro-dev side of things. And I've always wondered to myself whether I've ever fully divested myself of, uh, of those initial prejudices. <laughs> Well, my namesake, Dorothy McArdle, I've, I've read and heard of her, but I think you're the first I've heard reference her outright like that. And it's, oh, uh, it, it's, it's, it is one of the landmark studies, even to the present day. I mean, I would still constantly use it uh, as reference. Magic. Yeah. And that's, that was your, that was the spark point for you? Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I've, even now when I, I read both of those books, thankfully they're two very, very good books. I mean, the biography, even though it was to a certain extent a soft soap biography of de Valera, it was an exceptionally well written. Biography. And at what age did you come across that? Because I was expecting more like, oh, when I was eight, my dad gave me the geography, the the an atlas of Europe, and I read about Hitler's. And no, I don't, you know, no, no, I was I was about seven or eight. Uh, that's when I first read it. Uh, <laughs> Is I, that I, an I, unusual book? I mean, well, I, I know you are now a history <laughs> professor, so perhaps it's not. Well, I, I, the, the very the the Macarthur book was missing the uh, the cover so I covered it with the then cornflakes packet so it has a historical interest because as a cornflakes packet as it stood in the 1970s and it still has that that cornflakes packet cover uh, but as a boy of that age you know was it because your dad had it? you know what drew you to that what made you look at that and think that's a book I want to read or or was that the sort of level of literature you're reading at the time anyway well I, I'm, I'm not to be honest I can't quite remember mm. it wasn't that I was pushed into it by mm. my my parents although there were some history books around, but we, I mean, Dad was a bus driver and Mum mm. worked from home, so there wasn't there wasn't mm. much money to buy lots of books. But uh, and you didn't really need it because that type of book, uh, certainly the McCardle book, is so thick and dense. You didn't really need to to read a huge amount more at that stage to have your mm. interest ignited. And they're both superbly written, very very detailed, and it just fired my imagination. Mm. And there and and there on uh, and, yeah, and, I've, and I, I've never thankfully I've never really lost that sense of wonder uh, and, and awe at what went on a hundred years ago. And so it was even specific. So the, the, the matters that we're talking about are the, are the, the ones that drew the, you into very, history the, full the stop. The things that, that got me first interested in history as a general subject. Obviously, yeah. I've, I've studied many other things, uh, many other periods, many other countries, but I always come back to this period in Irish history. Well, you know, so you've, you've, you've sort of uh, admitted to your dev stripes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, there, you know, is that the, the duality of Irish history? Is it fair that that sort of sense of a, a one side and the other? I mean, well, I, mean I suppose it still pertains to some degree, well, doesn't it? Fortunately, uh, because of the, the party political developments, uh, some elements of that, was, I think, was almost inevitable um, and, and benefited certain constituencies of opinion, both on the pro and anti-treaty side. Uh, thankfully, most people were able to, to discern the truth of the matter, that, that the truth wasn't as black and white, it wasn't all virtue, wasn't all on one side or, or on the other of, of that 
divide over the treaty. Well, well, would you paint it maybe for us in simple terms before we delve into it a little bit more deeply? I mean, Dev spent a lot of time towards the end of the War of Independence in the United States and maybe, you know, not necessarily his detractors, but those on perhaps the other side of the, the fence might say, oh, that was a deliberate cunning move on his behalf to remove himself from the, the, the seat no, of the no, theatre no, in order no, to leave no. the others in it so that he could return and blah, blah, blah. But no, all no. those sorts of stories yeah. did emerge post they did, it, they did. But, but they where did. are we? Where, where's Dev? Where's Collins? Yeah. The, everyone's tired. It's come to a stalemate. There's there's treaty talks as there had been at the Christmas previous. Where are we with all of that? And, and we'll get into Dev and Collins then as we get on. In the summer of 1921... Um, Certainly, it wasn't a military stalemate in the sense that the British certainly believed that they were getting the upper hand. And in one sense, they were. I mean, their policy, for example, of internment, simply arresting and interning large numbers of males, uh, regardless of whether they were particularly active or not, uh, had had the effect of both removing many activists from, from the scene and, I suppose, generally deterring others from becoming active. But it, it hadn't completely destroyed by any manner of means the IRA capacity to uh, carry out a sustained campaign. What you did have in the spring and summer of 1921 was a, a diversion away from the centres such as Cork uh, and Tipperary and Limerick. You started to have parts of Leinster and Connacht engaging British forces. Some of this was deliberate policy to try and ease the pressure on uh, the active areas, particularly under, which are under martial law at this point. Uh, and some of it simply just took that long to get some of these areas uh, up to speed. Um, so the IRA uh, certainly was was by no means a beaten docket. Uh, and the British Army, I suppose, almost inevitably perceived that it was winning the war, as, as all armies tend, tend to do. Uh, the British realised that if they didn't win the war quickly and they faced into an autumn another winter, then they were in trouble because there was uh, a briefing provided by General McCready that said, we'll have to replace the entire army. Basically, every single officer and every single soldier are so demoralised by the conditions of service that we'll have to move them all out and have to bring in an enormous number of new troops, taking them from the empire and training it in Britain, etc. And inevitably, this was going to handicapped the British effort for a while until they got up to speed. So the British were, were very keen, certainly MacReady, to, to have an all-out effort uh, in the summer months of 1921. But an all-out effort was came at too high a price as far as the Cabinet were concerned. Um, so that's, that's one part of the story. The second part of the story is the fact that the Government of Ireland Act is now been implemented, that Northern Ireland has been created, the King visits the, the Parliament of, of Northern Ireland, the new Parliament in, in Belfast, City Hall, as it was then, ultimately moved to Stormont. So the British have a card in the hole. I mean, they have the border in place, they have Northern Ireland, and Lloyd George, I think, realises that this offers sort of a card that he can play in the negotiations. Um, and, and on the Republican side, uh, there's also a realisation, I think, that the British aren't going to be beaten out simply by force of arms. But some of the, as well, the back channel suggests that the British may be amenable to some form of negotiated settlement whereby the Republicans could get what they wanted, while at the same time offering enough to the British that would satisfy British demands, such as concessions on defence and things like that, which, which the British were, of course, concerned about after the First World War and the Republicans didn't regard as absolutely central. So there seemed to be enough room for manoeuvre in the middle ground uh, with both sides, in effect, coming towards the conclusion that George Orwell was better than war war. 
in a way, I mean, well, you, I'm not sure if you can say the same for the British, but the Irish uh, uh, Republicans were not going to get what they wanted. No. Did they know that? And and to what, you know... Well, uh, this is where de Valera is clever. I mean, de Valera says that what we're aiming for is a republic. In effect, where we have, we are in control of our own matters. And in effect, sovereignty comes from the people. What the British were concerned with was things like defence and loyalty and membership of the empire. So what de Valera does is devise this formula, which many people have mocked, but which was used by the Indians, for example, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War when India became independent. The concept of external association, whereby there would be an association between Ireland and the Commonwealth. Ireland would be attached to the Commonwealth, as it were, externally, rather than being a member of it, and, and as it were, internally. But the, the, the Irish would then recognise the king not as the source of sovereignty in Ireland, which would come from the people as a, as a republic, but they would recognise the king as the symbol of that association. But the king would have no more role in Ireland, in the same way that Ireland nowadays would recognise the head of the United Nations mm. as, were, as head of the, the, the association of which Ireland is a member. Mm. But the king would have rather less power in that role than the modern head of the United Nations has in, in that sense. It would simply be a symbol re recognising Ireland's association with the Commonwealth rather than anything more substantial than that. And it was it was a clever formula. Uh, certainly in terms of the negotiations before the negotiations, the talks by talks, the, the telegrams are exchanged between de Valera and Lloyd George over the, the autumn of 1921 before the, the London talks began. Because when, when are we talking truce? Truce is in, I just have to remember, is in July, I think it is. Uh, I'd have to just check the exact date. And then you have, well, even the truce is interesting because... To negotiate a truce and to publicly agree a truce... You have it, to accept. It, it, you have to accept that the other side is an army. That, you, in effect, it involved the tacit recognition by the, the British forces, by the British Which they'd army. refused to do. Absolutely, and, and they'd consistently depicted Republicans as a murder gang, a criminal mm. conspiracy, mm. and you don't conclude They had murder truce. by the throat. Exactly. But it turns out now it was an army they were exactly. fighting. Exactly. Now, internally, many memoranda from the British army over the previous year had recognised the military capability of the IRA but it had been found politic as it were for the cabinet to constantly use this this rhetoric of the murder gang but if you if you you don't you don't negotiate a truce with the murder gang you do concede a truce with the IRA and and the British army especially McCready recognised what this meant it meant that if war broke out again you couldn't do what the British had done you couldn't intern people uh, you couldn't execute them. Uh, in effect, it, it tacitly accepted that the executions had been illegal because you're executing prisoners of war, members of an army. Uh, so it had enormous numbers of enormous number of ramifications, very serious ones, for how the war, the previous war, had been conducted, and possibly also how the next war, if it ever broke out again, uh, would have to be conducted. So you'd have to presume that their agreeing to a truce in the first place was itself a, a momentous decision. Absolutely, and and it happens almost overnight. I mean, on let's say on the Friday, the British are still talking the talk of the murder gang yeah. and murder by the throat and we'll beat them. And on the following Monday, they're recognising de Valera as the, the head of a substantial majority of the Irish opinion, inviting him over to London for talk. It is quite a turnaround. Well, the, the British are masters at, 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 when it suits, mm. uh, turning on a sixpence. And Lloyd George especially 
uh, was, was known for being rather unscrupulous in such matters uh, and conveniently forgetting all the previous rhetoric and now uh, seeing to recognise de Valera, not so much as head of the door. The British never recognised Dolera because, of course, that was a step too far. But they did recognise that the election results of 1918 and the new elections in 1921... That there was a mandate there. Yes, uh, and, and recognised de Valera's role as head of, of that body of opinion. What they also did, however, was to recognise James Craig as head of Northern Ireland. That's it. You know, this whole, you know, because in a way you can sort of look at the War of Independence and, and it seems relatively clean as to what was happening, even though, you know, you, don't, you look a little under the cover and it's as complex as the rest of it. But certainly when you get into the, the truce and the treaty and the civil war and it's just so there's so many threads, uh, because, you know, even in this, what I'm tempted to ask is. At what point was there a realization of partition? Obviously, long before this, you know, the Republicans are fighting for a, a, a an in, you know indivisible Irish Republic, which they're unlikely to ever get. So presumably, the 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 guys at the top know that they're they're the, the, you know the the men who are out in the trenches are fighting for something that really is not deliverable at that well, point. Do the men know yeah. that? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that the strategy, certainly for Michael Collins, if you have a look at what he does, I think his general premise, if you get the British out militarily, if you get the British army to withdraw its forces from Ireland, which, of course, was the big, one of the big selling points of the treaty, then, in effect, everything else would follow. That the British power and influence in Ireland was based on its military strength. And if you remove that military strength, then issues such as the border and the Unionists would, as it were, they, you could deal with them internally. Internally and based on their strength and without the backing of having the entire British state uh, at their back. So there was some sense in certainly in Collins's approach to the treaty negotiations I mean that's that's one of the big things that he's determined to achieve and of course it, it is one of the things that achieved and it's one of the things when we're talking about the the descent into civil war is one of the things that Collins wants to avoid at all costs is to stop the withdrawal process and the British have been pulling out in the early months of 1922 after the treaty is signed they withdraw their troops from Victoria Barracks in Cork from all the other barracks and they concentrate them in Dublin prior to, to departure from Dublin um, and then you have the series of events in the summer of 1922 the seizure of the four courts the assassination uh, of Henry Wilson in London etc and the, the British threatened to stop the pullout. And it's, a, it's only at that point that Collins makes the decision uh, which, he, which he desperately tried to avoid, which is to finally break with the anti-treaty Republicans. Up until that point, for all the, the bad blood that had been generated by the treaty vote and the treaty debate, he, he tried to maintain a line of contact with them. But it's only when, when he realises that ultimately, in the summer of 1922, it's either them or the British stop the pullout. And he, and he makes the decision ultimately that he has to get the British out. And if that means fighting his erstwhile comrades, then that was a, a very high price, but it was one he was forced to, to pay. That's why I was emphasising that that sense of, you know, that's not what we were fighting for, because that seems to have been sort of the, the, the core of yeah. the of the anti-treaty thing. Well, I mean, for the pro-treaty, in effect, what they were saying is that, is that if we if we genuinely want to develop Ireland, if we genuinely want to realise our full potential, we have to cut our ties with Britain. And 
the only way that you can do it is to get get the Brits out, as well, to get the troops out, to remove its entire military infrastructure. And and if you do that, which is a huge achievement, which is and 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 in effect, what remains of British influence would wither on the vine. Remember that the one of the other principal pillars of. British influence in Ireland, which had been the landlord class, was already on the way out because of they'd been their their estates had been bought out by the tenants, and that process hadn't yet completed. But it was it was well on the way to being so. Uh, so the various different pillars of British influence, the landlords, particularly in rural areas, uh, the British military, uh, as far as Collins was concerned, you, you had to get rid of those before you could then start building from the floor up. Now, of course, the Republicans in their own time, uh, in their own way, also had logic uh, as well, uh, logic to their position, which is that the only way that you've been able to galvanise the various different sections of Irish nationalism had been in the name of the Republic. All the various different other uh, forms, whether it was uh, Home Rule, Dominion Home Rule, Dual Monarchy, the original Sinn Féin platform, all of these had failed to deliver the unity that the, the demand for the Republic had, had generated really after 1916 and through the War of Independence. So their argument was that if, if, you, will, if you pay the price of, of forsaking the Republic, what you would get would be a fractured, fragmented public opinion. And that in itself, it would be very difficult to build the island of which they dreamed, as it mm. were. So there was logic on both sides. I mean, and, and the, of course, the problem is, is that you're facing a very powerful enemy. Mm. Uh, the, the additional problem then also is partition. Mm. And precisely because the British cleverly have, have introduced the border, the British, and this is a point I think that's very frequently asked, were willing to put pressure on the units to get rid of the border if they could get an agreement with the Republicans to stay within the empire, precisely because the British were very keen to protect the Southern Unionists. And they recognised that a permanently partitioned island would, one of the big losers, would be Southern Unionists. Obviously, one of the other big losers would be Northern Nationalists, but the British weren't particularly concerned about those. So the British, and again, this is often forgotten, did put pressure on the, on, on the Unionists after the treaty is signed to voluntarily do away with the border. Uh, and they make this clear in the treaty debate at Westminster, because in addition to the treaty debates in Dolaire and the treaty debates at Westminster, Lloyd George and others said, we, we want a united Ireland. We want a united Ireland in the empire. We have now achieved the position where we've got an agreement on the part of those who had stood for a republic uh, to, to enter the, the empire, to recognise the king. And having done that, we think that the conditions have been achieved which, which would warrant doing away with the border. They, they do allow the unionists in the north to make the decision. And ultimately the unionists in the north say, no way, we're, we're keeping the border. But, but that was the moment at which so, the, the border was at its, its, mm. its most vulnerable. So the northern unionists could have made a decision then that could have seen Ireland... Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, un well, undivided yeah. and still within the empire. Yes, so they kind of cut off their nose to spite their face. Well, what, in what, that they, what they did, one of the provisions of the treaty was to say uh, that the, the, the Parliament of Northern Ireland would vote either to to remain within the Irish Free State, and this is a technical point. The, the treaty technically provided for a, a, a united Ireland, a thirty-two county dominion, the Irish Free State, but Northern Ireland would have the right to vote itself out. But if it did, 
then a boundary commission would be established to redraw the border. And the fear was on the part of many unionists was that that boundary commission would get rid of Fermanagh, Tyrone, Mm. South Armagh, West Derry, etc. And what would remain would be so small Mm. that it would be... Non-viable. Non-viable. And and they would be forced in probably on less generous terms than they might otherwise have achieved. Uh, The British government recognised that the, the Southern Unionists on their own, as powerful as they were, as they had been during the Union, had been weakened by the Land Acts, by the fact that the, the landed class was now on, on the way out, and needed the augmentation of strength that the Northern Unionists could bring. Yeah. Uh, and the, in the long term, if that border lasted, then the Southern Unionist community would be effectively eclipsed, which is exactly, of course, mm. what happened. So it, it is a point that is very frequently forgotten, that the British did expressed to the unions the, the view that, that from London, and this includes people like Birkenhead, who had been on the unionist side during the third home rule crisis, uh, people like Andrew Bonner Law, the leader, the former leader, or the leader of the Conservative Party, as well as liberals such as Lloyd George, that the interests of Britain, the interests of Ireland, and the interests of unionism would be best served by doing away with the border. Goodness me, it's... Um it's really hard to actually navigate through all it of is, that. It is, it is. I mean, it, the, the general consensus is that the British, having established the border, sort of were determined to maintain it come what may, where the units were their, their instruments of power. But it's at this point that if you could have got, and the British thought they had got the nationalists, southern nationalists of whatever ilk to sign up to the empire, uh, the British, I think, frankly, would have been were only too glad to see Ireland go its own way, so long as it remained within the empire, because it had been such a dis- disruptive force within the union during the period after eighteen. So it would have been out of the union, but within the empire. Yes. Um, uh, some also w- would say that the 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 free state as it became uh, would have had less. Uh, potential to turn into the sort of like you know the unionists used to say we you know home rule is Rome rule. Yep. And in many respects, by abandoning the South and, and, and dividing the country, they almost, you know, helped that come to pass. Well, of course. I mean, you, uh, there would have been a sizable minority within a United Ireland or, or, a, or a single island um, that c- could and couldn't have resisted that uh, well, to the benefit well, of, I mean, the, the, of the whole country. Well, and, and of course, remember that Northern Ireland then becomes a, a state which is absolutely dominated by the, mm. the Protestant interests. Mm. Uh, ultimately, what partition does is to create two entities which completely disrupts the, the religious balance mm. uh, as a whole. I think it's, it's important to remember that Protestants didn't do too badly in the, in the South. I mean, the, the Southern Protestant class certainly retained its, its very influential position in things like the, the law, medicine, uh, in, in business, the Guinnesses and, and, and the like. So they weren't completely eclipsed, but certainly in terms of the general ethos of the Southern state, of course, it becomes Catholic and Gaelic in the same way that the North becomes very Protestant. Protestant and British. What what might have been the result had partition not taken place? Certainly you would have had the augmentation of the Southern Unionists with this very strong Northern Unionist bloc. And of course, you also wouldn't have had the problem uh, that, of course, developed after 1920 of having the Northern Nationalists in effect being treated as outcasts mm. uh, within, within the six counters. Uh, whether you would have had fresh problems, you probably would. Mm. Uh, I think the Unionists would have remained sort of a block apart but again in much the same way as the southern unionists were forced to make their peace with the the reality of the new state and and did reasonably well mm. in terms of defending their interests after 1921 had the northern unionists voted themselves not so much 
into the Free State but hadn't voted themselves out. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're a pretty hard-headed bunch mm. and I think they would have done a pretty good job of negotiating a way of defending their interests. Uh, and, of course, you, you still would have had a residual British influence. I mean, you, you'd still have had things like the Navy was still you're going to be using Cove and Castle Tambert um, as, as part of the treaty. Uh, and a number of other elements were written into the legislation to, to protect uh, interests such as the issues such as divorce and so on and so forth. The 1920 Act, which would have presumably been some sort of a model for the subsequent legislation. Uh, so it, it's 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 theoretical what might mm. have happened, but what is not theoretical is that it could have happened. Mm. That and that the 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 coalition in London, having negotiated and signed the treaty, genuinely wanted the unions in the north to vote themselves to to remain in the free state. Uh, but they couldn't do very much about it. I mean, having given the guarantee uh, and used all the well, influence they had. There's no real back channels between the, the Republicans in the South and the North. There's no real well, conversation that, that way, is there? Well, the, the, is there conversation North-South or well, is it East-West? There, there east is. West? I mean, it's, it's not so much back channels. I mean, Michael Collins and James Craig have meetings oh, okay. in, in January 1922. Uh, and and they, they started talking about various matters, in particular that Collins agrees to try and to stop the Belfast boycott where Republicans accompanying partition had done everything they possibly can to economically to weaken the new state, including things like putting boycott on accounts from banks and refusing to buy produce and, and so on and so forth. So Collins agrees to undo that, which in effect, of course, was recognising partition, mm. uh, as it were, and, 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 and return for which James Craig agrees to, to try and ensure that Catholics who've been thrown out of the shipyards in, yes. in the summer of 1921 uh, would be reinstated in their jobs. And it's summer 22 that the civil war breaks out because yeah. I know that anti-treaty forces, you know, go north. And, well, up and, until then, I mean, this has been one like of... There's this, operations, isn't there? Yeah. This is one of Collins's, as we're trying to keep many balls in the air. I mean, having signed a treaty, he then does his best to try and keep his options open. Uh, I mean, he, he keeps his options open with the British government, but the British government are increasingly wary and intolerant of what they see as his backsliding and his willingness to keep open the line of communication with his with with the anti-treaty element of Sinn Féin. He has a line of communication with James Craig, which you just mentioned, where he where he meets. And this is the the, the next time the two leaders of the two jurisdictions meet uh, are the O'Neill, Terence O'Neill and Lamas meetings in the sixties, forty years later. Uh, he keeps a line of communication open with the anti-treaty Republicans, particularly a, a joint campaign against Northern Ireland in the early months of 1922, as we're focusing on the common enemy. Uh, and, and it also has the useful uh, added benefit of keeping the anti-treaty mm. IRA away from the South. While Collins is building up, for example, the, 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 the what was to become the National Army, he's also agreeing the, the new constitution, recruiting the Gardaí and the civil service. But what Collins also has to do is to make sure he keeps on side with many of the pro-treaty elements, because there were many pro-treaty elements uh, while they, they looked up to Michael Collins. Some of them were, were, were not keen themselves on Collins maintaining this link uh, with the anti-treaty Republicans. So both on the British side... James Craig was hearing, without any concrete proof, that Collins was collaborating and was the mastermind behind this campaign. And even the pro-treaty side were looking to Collins to try and make the final break with the anti-treaty Republicans. But that Collins was very, was loath to do uh, until he's forced to do so by the fact that the British ultimately say, if you don't, we'll stop the military pullout and we'll, we'll get rid of the four courts problem ourselves. 
and the four courts problem was was a, a, a an occupation yep. by by anti treaty uh, agitators yep. um, uh, who who were there to be a physical presence to say we don't want this. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was. Rather, were they there for long? Yes, I mean they were there for several months. I mean, they, and it was rather strange because having occupied the four courts, they were then free to go in and out. They'd be going to the shops, uh, buying the newspapers, and a rather sort of desultory presence, but. They were an occupation. They had centres, uh, and and certainly it didn't make any sense to attack them, uh, given that they didn't seem to be much of a threat. Uh, and and in effect, they do they make a worse mistake than had been mistake made in 1916, where at least in 1916, when they occupy buildings, they're they're militarily entrenching them and they're ready for a fight. Whereas with the four courts, it's sort of they occupy the building merely as a symbolic gesture mm. uh, and make themselves, of course, sitting ducks. Uh, when ultimately the decision is taken by Collins to to attack them with artillery lent by the British. Um, well, sitting ducks, but also you know uh, hostages to fortune. I don't know if that phrase stands up, but you know, like they almost they're they're, they're inviting the well, attack they, they, well, they, I mean, in order to. Well, I'm not sure they invited the attack. I'm not sure that whether they ever expected to be attacked. Right. But when they were attacked, but if we are, we know what that means. Yes, uh, and 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 they were they, they were very keen to to play up. What they saw as the parallel with 1916, with yes. as it were the pro-treaty forces yeah. in effect this time being the the equivalent of the British, and they the anti-treaty forces equivalent of Pierce and others in in the garrison in GPO. So roughly, we've the uh, truce in in the summer of uh, 21. Yeah. We so there's a, there's six to twelve months of of working out. Well, what, what you this have is, is you, you have sort of about three months when there are talks about talks, various different feelers. Mm. De Valera goes over with a delegation to London, a preliminary delegation, uh, comes back, in effect saying what the British are offering we can't sign up to, but there's enough of a deal that we, we don't we can keep open that communication. De, De Valera and Lloyd George have a series of telegrams passing between themselves over the autumn of 1921, trying to, to both of them negotiate into a position where you can start the talks, you don't have to go back to war, but you do so on a, on a basis that's favourable to yourself. In October, then, the face-to-face -face negotiations begin in London. They conclude with the signing of the treaty on the 6th of December. And where, where are you with the whole, like, De Valera? You know, why doesn't Dev go? Well, I mean, he is the, the, the he main is, guy. He is, and, and it was consistently that made the point even before the delegation leaves as well as does he know that it's a poison chalice no well no i mean in one sense he knows that the british aren't going to simply concede a republic in in the traditional mm. form of having no contact with britain whatsoever he genuinely believes that a uh, that the idea of external association is viable uh, and for, it's one of that reasons that he maintains very close contact with the treaty delegation to make sure that they're not doing anything which would undermine that. Remember De Valera also, in addition to the credentials presented by the Doyle, which in effect saying that the, the, the plenipotentiaries have the right to negotiate and conclude a treaty, De Valera also gave them secret instructions, which is to say you don't sign anything until you refer that text back to Dublin and got agreement. So from that point of view, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't a question that De Valera was setting up the delegates mm. for a fall because they, they, if they had followed those instructions, yes, they, they could not, they would not have signed anything. But that then, De Valera wouldn't also have signed. But you mentioned about how, when it comes to civil war time or the the four courts issue and the occupation in there yeah. of anti-treaty forces or anti-treaty agitators, uh, military, the, the you know the, the IRA, the anti-treaty IRA, uh, um, and the British th 
threat to say we're not we'll, we'll stop the withdrawal and we'll go and take care of them which obviously would have completely undermined any kind of sort of authority that the the new Irish state was supposed yeah. to have and intending to display but but on the night of the negotiations was a similar threat by Lloyd yes, George, absolutely. wasn't it? I mean, Sign it or tomorrow we're back at war. Well, I mean, so what, uh, were, what were they to do? Well, I mean, did they make a mistake in signing? Uh, well, I mean, you have to understand the, the enormous pressure they were under, psychologically mm. speaking. Mm. I mean, and Lloyd George was... But even, was, even with your thing, like, don't sign anything until you've had approval Yes, and, and, and the delegates had gone back to Dublin the previous weekend. Mm. Uh, and, and de Valera had... And the, the text that they'd presented then was close to the final text of the treaty, albeit there were okay. certain changes made at the last minute. And Collins ultimately says those changes were enough to, to warrant my signing. I mean, in effect, he, he, he makes the argument that Wherever the private instructions, he said that, uh, that this is the best we're going to get. Mm. We we can't negotiate anything better. So ultimately, we we I'm going to sign it not because I thereby guarantee the creation of a free state, but we refer the matter back to the Irish people. In effect, we sign and we and then them, see what people think. see what people think. Well, that seems fair enough. Well, and, and it was a reasonable point. But what De Valera was saying, well, if you didn't stand for the Republic. In effect, you would never have been elected to the Dáil in the first place and you wouldn't have then mm. been in a position to be a, a, a plenipotentiary. So. So, so what maybe then would Dev have preferred to have happened if, if he well, wanted... It's, it's, it's impossible it's, it's to know. a I mean, crude it, way to phrase well, it. it. Is, and, and, uh, I mean, ultimately, the British weren't, uh, weren't going to continue to mm. negotiate mm. indefinitely at mm. some point in time. And clearly, the 6th of December was the point at which they said, that's it, it's this or war. Uh, de Valera genuinely, genuinely said, well, if that's the case, we, Call their bluff. Well, or, or well go no, to war. Go to war. In effect, he said that Back to it, war. If, if that is what it's if that is what the but British Collins felt they, that they just didn't have the capacity well, to do that. Well, what Collins? It's not so much that. It's that Collins said, well, even if we do go back to war. The best that we can hope for is still something like this. Exactly. I mean, in effect, we're not going to beat, and yet more people will die, more, more misery, die. and we could be in a far worse position. Yes. Uh, that we we've got them to this position. This is the best we're going to get in terms of the military situation. It's not going to get any better. So this is this is what ultimate. We, the, these are the key decisions, and we have to make the call now. So, well, you know, in, in that, then where is it's not even the truth because it's not about the truth. It's not that there's one thing that's correct and no, and no, one there, that isn't, isn't. there isn't. Uh, but then what do you do? So Dev's like, go back to war. This is the best we'll get. If we go back to war, that's still the best we get and we could actually be in a worse position. Who makes that call? Well, ultimately, it's the Dáil. I mean, and, and Collins argues... And they did make the call with they, the vote. They did because of the treaty, the treaty, uh, the treaty vote, the debate in... So like, should Dev had... Because, have, 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 like, you know, you know, Dev is the leader of the anti-treaty side of things. So... Yeah. You know, was he being disingenuous well, in, in not in, accepting it, the Dáil vote? Well, well, in effect, he says the Dáil has been asked to vote itself out of existence, uh, which which <laughs> it, which it did. I mean, ultimately, the Dáil was it was a Republican Dáil. The, the, the Dáil from 1918 through mm. to 1922, uh, I suppose, is is a Republican Dáil. But the new Dáil that comes into existence in the autumn of 1922, after the Civil War breaks out, is a partitioned one. I mean, it only yeah. affects the 26 counties. It has to, uh, its members have to swear the oath of allegiance, etc. So it, it's a very, very, to the king. It's a very different It's a very beast. different entity than, than the one that had preceded it. So de Valera, in effect, saying, is saying that what is being proposed is ultra vires. It's beyond the power of the Dáil to vote itself out of existence, because ultimately, as a Republican body, it's only the people who could vote itself out of existence. But are, they, and, are they starting to twist themselves almost well, into semantic is, knots? Well, well, this is where de Valera, in effect, says there's a triple lock. He says that no 
no deputy can vote for the treaty because every single TD has been elected on a Republican ticket yeah. and therefore you would be violating your yeah. uh, commitment to yeah. the, the, yeah. the your constituents by doing that. It says that. the Doyle can't vote itself out of existence because in effect as a Republican body it has been created by the Irish people and only the Irish people can vote itself out of existence and it's the kicker at the end he said even the Irish people in the current circumstances can't do that because they're war weary and in effect the vote they're not in a, in the, in the, in the right in state the of mind exactly. to make this decision exactly. right. well then who does well I mean, and, and that's, that's where the problem arises in effect the, 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 the thesis being put forward by De Valera was that the circumstances particularly this threat of renewed war uh, terrible war in effect that that it, it, no contract made under duress is is moral is is binding, uh, and that sounds reasonable. Yeah. But I guess it's still in terms of practical politics. Well, no, but 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 still, then you're left with well, then well, what, what to do? Well, do we all just go off to the Canaries for a few months and come back and go? Well, uh, where and, are we, lads? And, and that that was one of the the principal arguments put forward by the the pro side is that you you at some point in time we are going to have to make this decision that for all the flaws in the procedure that yeah. has, has led to us arriving at this point, then ultimately, even if the circumstances were ideal, we would still have to make this decision at some point in time. So better to make it now. And it is funny because I think almost any Irish person who has an interest in Irish history on this matter and on this subject, you know, kind of believes in both calls. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's and that, that's the real irony of the situation is that there is virtue on both sides. And to a certain extent, there's vice on both sides. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, there yeah. There are flaws. There is no right sides. answer. No, so, there, isn't, there isn't. But is it not better then to just have done something and move forward with that as opposed to, no, we won't go? Or like, well, the, Where does the, that bring the, you? The Republican argument saying that this, this is a unique moment in Irish history. There has never been a Doyle in Irish history, there's never been an authentic Republican body that genuinely was elected by the people and which has stood on the Republic amidst all the trials and tribulations of the 1919 to 21 period. You have the blood of the martyrs of McCurtain, McSweeney, mm. all the rest of Bloody Sunday, mm. Kevin Barry, that, that, that you've paid this price and every single one of those sacrifices have been in the name of the Republic. And you cannot, without betraying the memory of the, the, the dead, uh, make this step. So again, and that was a very, very emotive argument. Mm. Uh, and you have people like Mary McSweeney in the chamber. You have the widow of George O'Callaghan, the the, the murdered Limerick, uh, mayor of Limerick. But someone there. has to chart a course. Well, and exactly. And, and, and that's the other side of the argument is that at some point in time, again, you, you have to... And, and Collins, make, there's, a, there's a fascinating part of Collins' speech where in effect he, he says that, that you have to have the living nation. Uh, do we do we never think of what it is to create the living nation? I mean, are we always to constantly obsessed with maintaining a fight that ultimately we can't win? Uh, or are we genuinely, as Republicans, determined to realise the potential of the people using the full powers of the people? And that was a, a powerful argument as well. There, there, was some, there were very good arguments put forward. Uh, on both sides. I mean, as with most debates that go on for a while, there was a certain degree of repetition and diminishing marginal returns. Each new speaker, there's less scope for them to say something new. But but the sincerity of all those spoke, I don't think, can be doubted. Even in some cases, you have rather odd contributions where you have some pro-treaty Republicans saying, we're voting yes for this simply because it gives us time to get more weapons in. 
and then we can start fighting the British again, uh, but we'll be in a better position to do so. Uh, so so you, have, you have people making arguments in favour of the treaty, but still ultimately uh, believing that you will have war with Britain, but that, that the treaty gives you the breathing space, the temporary breathing space, in order to fight that war on a, on a, a more substantial basis. Well, maybe I'm... Uh... Um, you know, I almost think either is, is that a, is that a bit? Uh, are they covering their arse? Well, it's, there it's, in, it's in effect it's like, looking at both sides. I mean, but and, and that's the point. Maybe is I'm that, a bit cynical in that well, regard. But, but many of the pro-treaty Republican, pro-treaty friends, we are still Republican. We still believe in the Republic, mm. but we're taking the stepping stone approach. This is again one of the metaphors used by Collins. Yes, yes. If, if you can't make the giant leap for Irish kind with mm. one step, mm. then you make it with several steps and, and that you do it incrementally and that you can do that in good conscience. In effect, he argues that, that, what, that, that coming back to the point, is what, what, does the, what do we need to create an Irish state? He said we need the British out mm. and we need, in effect, the, the economic levers of power on, in our hands. So things like the banks and so on and so forth. He said, uh, and these economic levers of power, ultimately, he said, have been used by the British over centuries to, to embed their rule. And he says, once the British are out, both economically and militarily, then you've got enough to be working from. It's not the ultimate goal that he said he wanted. It isn't the Republic. Uh, but even a Republic has to start somewhere, as he would say. And, and this is, this is we, we've got everything that we need and what, remains to be got will naturally follow uh, and again that was a that was a and you could argue in the course of time most of that argument has been born true with the exception of the border mm. uh that the and of course you also have the european union the, the creation of which was unimaginable back in the circumstances uh, back in the day so that that's created a whole new dimension but ultimately the border is the one thing that remains unresolved but collins i think genuinely believes that the british want the border to go uh because Lord George said that it's in the interests of Britain that the border goes. If 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 you are agreeable to stay within the empire, then which they were, which they were, which Collins was, um, and if you're willing to give us the the things such as defence facilities which we're needing, which the British were, uh, the Irish were, if you're willing to pay your share of the war debt, which Collins says, okay, we'll, we'll pay that as well, then then ultimately. I think Collins genuinely believes that either the British would put sufficient pressure on the Unionists to get them to vote themselves in, or if they voted themselves out, or to, sorry, to remain in, but if they voted themselves out, a, an authentic boundary commission would be established. Mm. And ultimately, the same thing ultimately would happen, mm. perhaps over a slightly longer period of time, and you would have a very substantial transfer of territory, uh, and the British might realise... And, and of course, remember that that would include transferring a large number of Unionists mm. into the South. It would keep you know, sort of a, a solid Unionist block in the north, but the Unionists in Armagh, the Unionists in Fermanagh and Tyrone, the Unionists in West Derry would all go into the south. So, so the, the Unionists would, ha would be facing an appalling situation that they would be losing a large number of their own uh, supporters. And those supporters the, the, the would, would put pressure on Craig and others to ultimately make their peace with, mm. with the rest of the people. Uh, who, and of course, remember that the Unionists believed that they were Irish, Mm -hmm. uh, believed in Ireland as a distinct entity, uh, and, 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 and believed that Irish uh, and that that Ireland was a fundamental part of Britain. Yes, or, uh, or at least or, or the United or, Kingdom. But their allegiance, that their their British identity would mm. be secured within the empire. Mm. So uh, it's still the quagmire. Then I mean, what would you know? What really could the anti-treaty forces engaging in civil war have hoped? 
possibly to achieve, even if they're standing for their, you know, the romantic well, well, belief. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's not pragmatism versus romanticism, no, it's really. No, it's not. I um, mean, on the basis that both sides have their pragmatism mm. and uh, romantic. I mean, ultimately, I think the the... It's a fight that the Repo- is forced on the Republicans that they don't start the conflict. Okay. In, in effect, yeah, okay. They're so beaten to the so it's a defensive measure yeah. in the first place. But, but ultimately, remember that most of the, the War of Independence IRA went anti-treaty. So there is a belief that once the war starts, and certainly once the, the initial urban warfare in Dublin is finished, which, take, which takes place about a week, but the Republicans are beaten pretty quickly, that the Republicans will go back in effect, the same type of guerrilla tactics, which served them so well during the War of Independence. The problem was, of course, now that you were dealing with people who knew the lie of the land. In some cases, you had former members of, of or members of the IRA had gone pro-treaty, mm. and they knew the safe houses, mm. they knew mm. the weapons mm. dumps, they knew the the sympathisers. Mm. Um, and of course, and, and now you probably had the vast majority of the pop, or at least a significant majority of the population supporting what was being done by the pro-treaty forces where you didn't have that civilian support for what mm. the British had been doing. Mm. So the the circumstances in which this new guerrilla campaign are being fought are, are much less advantageous than had been the case even uh, 12 months before against yes. the British. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a diff- it's a different ball game in that regard. But let me just get the, the, the Collins and Dev thing then. I mean, yep. Was their relationship a, a, a good one prior to... I mean, how did they feel about what happened? And are we right to pin those two as the key well, linchpins? I mean, ultimately, remember that in Griffith is the leader of the delegation to London. Mm. Uh, Collins is his subordinate. He's a very important subordinate. Mm. But Griffith is is the figure that is consistently neglected. Well, Fine Gael would regard him as being one of the, the forebears mm. mm. of, of the... Mm. Of ultimately the pro-treaty party coming away, which becomes after an evolution, uh, Fine Gael. So, so Griffith is is an, is the other major figure. So you have two big figures on the pro-treaty side. De Blair is clearly head and shoulders above anyone else on the anti-treaty side. That that they were all on roughly the same page until the treaty vote, the, the signing of the treaty. Griffith had made clear that he wasn't going to refuse to sign something. Uh, we, if if he thought that it satisfied his requirements, and and Griffith, remember, had had advocated for dual monarchy, the original Sinn Fein, back in 1905-1906, he had been prepared to accept some form of monarchy originally. In 1917, when Sinn Fein had gone Republican, he'd stepped down, but it wasn't really a huge deal breaker for mm, for Griffith mm. in the way that it was for so many others. So, but Collins ultimately in the meeting in Dublin before the treaty is signed, says, OK, we, I won't sign. And then he does. And this is this is really what gets De Valera, it makes him angry. Uh, that he said, we'd agreed both back at the start of the negotiations and just a couple of days ago and that you weren't going to sign. And now you've signed. I mean, remember also Did, De Valera. Was Collins ever able to answer that? Well, not really, no, other, other than to say, well, that's the deal. I mean, we, we, we did get some changes between last weekend and mm. th- th- this version. Mm. Uh, and I, I oh, think and so that's what you said earlier. I didn't yep. quite discern that. Yep. So it was kind of like, here's what they're saying. No, that's not right. few little changes and Collins is like, that's that's better. It's that's just, far more it's like it. It's just enough yeah. now that there are some with it. Now, of course, remember that Dev Should Collins have uh, given way to Dev in that and, well, and, and I mean, said, well, unless, you, unless my superior 
authorised it. No, because he had, he was a plenipotentiary. Well, he was a plenipotentiary, and he said, and and, and De Valera accepted that the plenipotentiaries had the right, mm. as it were, legally speaking, Jeez, to sign. But 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 he ultimately says that, that it did involve sort of it was both unwise and involved ignoring instructions. There, there is. Would one they mo- have both felt left down by each other? Well, certainly in terms of how things subsequently developed, the the, the, the parting of the ways was never subsequently healed, even though they continue to talk to each other, that they signed the electoral pact before the election. And again, am I wrong in focusing on Collins here? Should we be, should, should Griffith be well, more to Gr- the fore here? I mean, what's interesting, of course, is that when De Valera steps down as president of the Dáil and after the treaty vote, it's mm. Griffith who replaces him as president okay. of the Dáil. But Collins becomes chairman of the provisional government and it's the provisional government that the British recognise and deal with, okay. not, not the, the okay. Dáil. But yeah. there, is, there is one important point in terms of the split. De Valera had, you mentioned earlier on about De Valera coming back from America, there had been a huge split in America involving De Valera uh, just six months before, where De Valera had found himself on one side of a split and people like Judge Cahillon and, and John Devoy had been on the other side of the split. So De Valera had bitter experience of the damage that could be done to the cause if a split occurred. So I, I think De Valera genuinely was, was obsessed with trying to avoid that type of split, precisely because he realised that if you had sort of a split, the British would be able to to widen the breach, which ultimately is mm. what happens. Mm. So Devlair, I think genuinely, this this idea that Devlair was setting Collins up or anyone up, I think is absolutely wrong. Mm. Devlair genuinely believed that unity was possible, but only on the basis of external association, i.e. internal republic, mm. voluntarily associating as an as a, as a illustration of sovereign power w- with Britain, uh, but that you, ha- that, you, that you had to maintain unity. And when that unity is then fragmented by the signing so of the it's, treaty... So it's, it's the fact that the signing copper-fastened the division yeah. was the straw that for Dev wasn't... Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, he realises that once those signatures are on the treaty... Uh, and that's it, over in London, those, yeah, those yeah, yeah. signatures. Now, what, what he does do is... That because it still has to be uh, approved. Sanct- well, it has to be sanctioned by, sanctioned, by the door. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what de Valera says is that he then, then comes up with his famous document number two. What he says is that we can't vote in favour of this document. Here's another document which incorporates almost mm. verbatim mm. certain sections. So of, almost of he the renegotiated treaty. the treaty well, uh, well, well, in, in a different. Ultimately, saying that well, he didn't negotiate it, he rewrote it. He wrote it and said that, that, that we should agree ourselves on this. Yes, and, and go back to them and the, say this is pretty yeah, much that. But, yeah, with but, a few but Collins and Griffith say, listen, we the, we, we, we've done this already. I mean, yeah. that we've put these ideas to Britain. They've yeah. said no. The treaty is the is the document they've signed and mm. we've signed. Mm. It, it's it's that is the only game in town. And, and ultimately, we have to make the, the, there's no point debating a, a document that isn't going to fly. This mm. is the only document that we're talking about. Mm. So we talk about this document. And, and de Valera was subsequently embarrassed by document number two because it did include certain phrases and concessions. Uh, for example, with regard to, to Northern Ireland, where he, he was agreeable to, to some form of partition, so long as some sort of essential unity was maintained, mm. that you would have a double An overarching. Exactly. But you would give huge amounts of autonomy too. Yeah. Ultimately keeping the Northern Parliament in being, but 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 just merely so his, saying... His vision for the Ireland was like Britain's vision uh, for Ireland, uh, independent but within the empire. Yeah, exactly. and his was like uh, a Northern Ireland but within Ireland. Exactly. <laughs> there, is, there is a certain similarity. Mm. So so ultimately, I mean, the, in terms of de Valera, when he was in his retirement and, and his biography is being written, his official biography in the 1960s and into the early 70s, De Valera was f- completely obsessed with that period, ultimately from the 
treaties from the truce through to the signing of the treaty and the outbreak of the Civil War. And all his time in power in the 30s, in the 40s, and in the 50s, he, he, he wasn't really that bothered about putting himself correct on the record because ultimately he thought that the record stood for himself. He clearly felt himself vulnerable, his reputation vulnerable, because he believed that his motives and his actions had been misrepresented uh, and, and he was determined, in effect, to put his side on, on the record, as he had done, of course, to a certain extent, with the Dorothy McArdle book, which you mentioned at the very beginning. That, that, that account is, in effect, the de Valera version of the entire period. Even though de Valera it isn't, doesn't have de Valera's official imprimatur, de Valera writes the introduction to it, uh, and ultimately it is the Fina Fall account uh, of, of what had happened. Interesting. So that's a text... To, to well, look at. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to understand the anti or an anti-treaty argument, because, of course, there, there were others who ultimately broke with de Valera in the mid-1920s over things like entry into the door, ready to swear the oath of allegiance, mm. which de Valera ultimately does in 1926. Uh, but it, it certainly is the, the, the Fianna Fáil version and interpretation of the history. Uh, at least as it stood in the 1930s. Whether, of course, Fianna Fáil would stand over it now uh, is, is another matter. But certainly in terms of how Fianna Fáil interpreted that period, that that text is mm. absolutely central. I'm almost loath to start in, in, inquiring any further because we've you know covered a, a tranche. I, st I still don't really feel I've gotten, uh, not necessarily to the nub of it, but pr probably there isn't an answer to it because there there, there is no other alternative option that would have been uh, amenable to both sides or that would have changed the situation really because if there was someone would have come up with it well, then I mean, de, de, Valera, <laughs> de, de Valera both with the external association during the treaty negotiations and in the form of document number two puts forward that that view but I mean the well, British with the benefit of history is there anything we can say now well actually you know what if they'd done this that would have made it better or maybe he shouldn't have done that and he should have gone with it or well, just... I mean, I, I'm loath to, 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 to that <laughs> well I mean and, and, and you recognise the, the validity of, of the motives of the people yeah. that, that they genuinely are trying to but do like, their best the civil war did not advance anybody's cause did it did, did, did well, anything was anything made in any way better by it? Well, I mean, ultimately, you could argue that Collins believed that, uh, and of course, Collins dies during the Civil War. Mm. He didn't he didn't intend to die. He intended to win the Civil War. Mm. But I mean, what it does do is ensure that the British do pull out, uh, and you do have uh, the Civil War ensures that they pull out because because it proves yes, that, uh, yes. and, the, and the British do complete their, their yes. military pullout yeah. on, on foot of the. Okay, the, so I can see as well the kind of the the, the jeopardy that it, that's there on that. So it's like we. We we're forced to take on our former colleagues yeah. in order to show that we will rule this country, or in, order, we will... in order to get to the stepping stone. Yes, to, to take to the next stepping stone. And, the, and then, and then leads... you're left in a, a, you know, are the British leaving with a little bit of a laugh with, uh, in that regard? I don't mean a laugh, but mm. you know, like they've, they've the forced British... the situation. They've gone now. There you go. You deal with it. Well, there's a very interesting quote in General uh, or Field Marshal Montgomery's autobiography. I mean, he wrote up about He'd served in Cork. He was the brigade major yeah. based in Collins Barracks. Yeah. I mean, it, it was under his purview that many of the operations carried out in Cork mm. uh, had been conducted. And he clearly despised his time in Cork. He, he thought it was absolutely destructive of proper military discipline. And as a, as a, as a professional military officer, he was thoroughly delighted 
to get out of the place because he believed it was breaking the army and, and that it was undermining the, the capacity of the British army to conduct proper military organ, uh, operations. So certainly there were many people who, who believed that the Britain were better off out so long as they had got the guarantees and the points that they, they needed, which they did, so long as, they again, they'd had the naval facilities, which ultimately Britain as a naval power were, was primarily obsessed with. Uh, and, and there was also a very interesting quote in... Montgomery's autobiography, where in effect he, he notes that the pro-treaty side was willing to do things that the, even the British weren't. The pro-treaty side were willing to carry out larger numbers of executions than even the British had done, uh, and, and with perhaps less evidence than, than the British had done. Uh, so from that point of view, and I mean, Montgomery was, was a serious soldier, uh, that, that his view, I think, was widely shared amongst the professional officer class. Uh, Remember that a very significant proportion of the upper echelons of the British Army in the Second World War had served in Ireland during this War of Independence. Uh, there's, there's, there was a fascinating quote I saw from one of M.R.D. Foote, who was a member of Special Operations Executive in the Second World War and ultimately became its historian. He said the, the, the germ of the idea between Special Operations Executive was taken straight from the IRA. We looked at what the IRA had done to us and what Montgomery and others had, had learned in their lessons. And we, we, we taught it to the French resistance. And, and we, we, we encouraged the resistance movements in Poland and, and elsewhere. So while the British did get out of Ireland, I think we're glad to do so, that some of the lessons they learned about how to conduct unconventional warfare mm. were put to use, as it were, in a much bigger theatre of operations uh, in the Second World War. You mentioned that the Republicans in Dublin were, were, were beaten in a week. There's a retreat to, to rural areas. Uh, Cork's a big part of that. Is There are many theories as to why Cork's referred to as the the real capital and all of that sort of thing, but is one of them because uh, it, it, it it's a Republican capital for six months? Well, it's interesting that the Republicans moved to Cork and, and, and they've got taken control of, of Collins Barracks and they control the city. You then have, and this event is, is I think, very much neglected in the history of Cork. In the few weeks after the fall of Dublin, you have an amphibious landing. Oh, I've read John's book, John yes, Borgonovo, your, your 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 colleague in UCC, yep. the the invasion of Cork. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's a fabulous read. Yeah, and so you you have an amphibious sort of almost clandestine landing of free state troops. One of a number at the same time. Yes, of I mean, you had landings in, in Limerick, you had landings in Tralee. A and bold elsewhere. move. Well, I mean, Unexpected. It, well, in effect, what you do is you land troops and behind as yeah. were, what passed for the line yeah. and you force Republicans, in effect, to, to retreat further. So and into you take Monkstown the and Passage, is it? So the, 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 they land in, in Passage and, and you have a th about approximately a three-day battle mm. uh, along the line of, of, of the... Uh, uh, passage through to Rochestown, also over the hill, and, and, and the Republicans fight very hard, and you have a number of casualties on both sides. You have machine guns and, and the like, uh, before ultimately the, 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 the pro-treaty forces have fought their way ultimately to just where sort of the, the passage Rochestown, sorry, the passage, the Rochestown-Douglas area, mm. and the Republicans realise that if they don't pull out completely, the, 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 the Free State might be able to go around the back and, and cut off their line of retreat. So the Republicans retreat into Cork City and then retreat to, to West Cork. So yeah, the, the city itself falls. And of course, it's on that basis that the Collins then comes to Cork City uh, only a few days later 
uh, and, and ultimately meets his his doom two two or three days later. Then well, again. that's I remember when I when I connected th- those two things in in terms of timeline. I kind of wondered to myself, and and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm viewing it in the wrong light. Uh, you know, was there a little bit of hubris in Collins? I think I might have even have asked you this in a, in one of our previous yeah. chats, and you said no. I mean, he was on his home territory, he was on his home turf. Yeah. But you know, knowing that the city had been abandoned by the IRA, back down into the in, into West Cork and into the in, in, into their own sort of the the, the territory that they knew so yeah, well, let's that. say, and had fought yeah. in uh, so well. Um, and for him then to go down and, and go on a tour of West Coast, well, I mean, was, was that... Well, the, I think it was unwise, because yes. precisely because you have all the best Republicans, the hardline Republicans, are now concentrated in one area in a way that they had previously been, been more spread out. So it certainly was militarily more risky. I mean, obviously, Collins believes that flying the flag and, and sort of a, an audacious act such as this, to a certain extent, makes a statement and, and would, would sort of undermine the morale of the Republicans, that if you have your number one enemy going, driving through your midst, uh, how much, how further away can defeat be, or complete mm, 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 defeat okay. be? So there was, so there was, there was maybe method to the madness. There was, there it was, was some, yeah, but I mean, I, I certainly think it was unwise to go down in an open car. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if he'd been in an armoured car or in a much bigger convoy. Although uh, he's in the, the what you call him, is, is, is with us. The, 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 the Schlieve de Mon uh, car, but, but Collins isn't in it. Mm. Uh, so, but of course, had he been in it, he wouldn't have had the demonstration effect yes, of, of yes, him yes. being... So it was a through. deliberate thing, okay. Well, I mean, it's we've, we've taken the city back. And, yeah, it is impossible to yeah. know for certain. But, I mean, what he was doing is that he was going down on a tour of inspection because there were areas which were already okay. under free state control. Okay. He obviously takes in a, a spin to his home area. Mm. Uh, also, so it, to a certain extent, it's flying the flag. Yeah. It's a tour of inspection, and it, it serves as it were for, as a psychological mm. okay. boost to his supporters and a psychological weapon to the heart of his opponents. Okay, and he's nearly back into the city. He's at Bail de Blois. Yes. Um, yep. I, I I heard a piece of audio recently of, of from a witness or, or or someone who was in the 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 Free State Army with him on the day, and the audio effectively says that it had all finished. The shooting had stopped, and it was at that point of the inspection yep. uh, that. Collins got up and it was at that point that he was shot and there's all sorts of conspiracy well, I mean, re- stories rem- that rem- remember that the, the ambush which had been in place for many hours that the Republicans had started to demolish the, to, to, to uh, take the ambush away because they believed that Collins had managed to get back to the city by another route so ultimately when the Collins party arrives it's the ambush party which is ultimately ambushed. <laughs> I mean, they're the ones who are taken by surprise. So ultimately what the ambush is doing is not trying to kill Collins. They're just trying to get away without being killed or captured. And and you have this firefight with, as time goes on, fewer and fewer shots being fired as, as the Republicans disengage and, and move away. And and Collins then makes the fatal mistake of, of in effect, putting his head above the parapet and standing up to be shot. And well, he goes out and walks around. He well, believes. I mean, it, uh, for, it, and there's different different mm. accounts because I can mm. remember most of those mm. present are, are quite correctly keeping their head down. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, 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 in effect, he, he sees that the Republicans are disengaging. He stands up and, and the account that I've heard is that he said, let's get them and go after them. Oh, and, okay. and one of the, the Republicans who were covering the retreat gets a shot off again to try just as much to mm. suppress mm. The, 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 the pro-treaty forces. 
and manages to take out Collins. Whether he knew it was Collins or not, mm. I, I think is very, very doubtful. Mm. But he just took a shot at the obvious targets because you'd had this individual standing up. It's it's a difficult shot. I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who's ever fired a weapon, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. I have taken American students down to the site who um, many of them had served in the military and, and so on and so forth and, and knew how to handle guns. And I explained where the, the general consensus of the position was mm. of, of both where the shot was fired from and where Collins fell. And, and he made the point that, considering the weapons that was being used, but he made the point that those weapons in those days were pretty accurate because they had long barrels. Mm. Uh, and, and if you had a sniper who knew what they're doing, it would have been a difficult shot. But not impossible. But not impossible, certainly if you had a stationary target. And Colin seems to have moved towards the target rather than moved laterally. And obviously coming towards the target, ultimately the head stays in the same place. Whereas if he'd moved from side to side or stayed low or mm-hmm. not put his head up at all, it, it would not It would have been less difficult. So, and again, I, I, I defer to anyone with military expertise, mm-hmm. but it, it was, you're talking sort of 100 yards or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, in gathering gloom, uh, where all you're trying to do is ultimately suppressing fire as much as anything else rather than a precision precision shot but it is a precision shot uh, and and it does ultimately take out columns now of course there are conspiracy theories that he'd been shot by his own side i'm not sure that even if you'd had an autopsy anyone could ever say because whether you had an exit wound or an entry wound, it depends on exactly the point that collins head was turned mm. when the shot was done and if he turned to his own side uh, then you would have the entry wound at the back of the head and the exit wound at the front. Mm. So th- the position of exit and entry wounds Isn't wouldn't, would have been or... conclusive. It's not like the, the JFK shooting mm. where you have footage of, 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 where he, of which direction he was actually looking and you can mm. figure out which mm. direction it was coming from. So, I mean, even if there had been an autopsy, it's highly unlikely that even if you'd retrieved the bullet, it would have said very much because pretty much everybody's using the same type of weaponry. Mm. Uh, so, so... It's impossible to say, but there seems no logic to any thesis that somehow Collins could have been shot by his own side. It just seems that he's taken out uh, in the closing seconds of an engagement where had he just exercised a degree more discretion, then he would have got out of there and I. But Collins had had survived for two or three years, in effect, almost by defying logic and, and almost snubbing, thumbing his nose at discretion. Mm. So he dies as he'd lived. Mm. Uh, and with who knows what would have happened had he lived. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and the fact that Collins had died, uh, Griffith had died only a week before was a devastating blow to the pro-treaty side. So, uh, and if you're looking at how the... the Griffith's civil, death was... Griffith's death was from uh, a brain hemorrhage. Uh, so the, the final months of the Civil War become... Are desperate. This is when the, the executions begin. This is when people like Cosgrave saying, if we have to execute thousands, we will do so. I mean, as it were, the deaths of thousands of people are worth the life of a nation. Uh, and, and this is where the real bitterness enters the Civil War uh, after Collins' death. Mm. That's not to say that, mm. that <laughs> it, it wasn't, wouldn't have that, happened that, anyway yeah. and it wasn't already bitter, but the, the, certainly uh, the execution. in charge then? Uh, uh, Cosgrave. Cosgrave had, had took over. He becomes the leader of the provisional government. Uh, he calls the Doyle in September 1922. It, it ratifies the Free State Constitution, and then that comes into effect on the 6th of December 1922, a year to the day after the signing of the original treaty. And that's the day that the Free State comes into existence, and that's the day that 
uh, Cosgrave becomes president of the executive council. The, the term Taoiseach only comes into existence uh, with the 37 constitution. So 6th of December, well, don't worry, we're at, no, no. <laughs> we're, we're at an end. I'm not going to uh, try to delve further, but I'm just, the six, so it's the 6th of December 21 is the is the treaty signed in London, uh, and, then and the, the 6th, 6th of December, December 22, 22 is the creation of the, the Free State. In, in this decade of commemorations, the decade of centenaries, what, I mean, well, obviously we commemorate it, we remember it, we discuss it and debate it and, 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 and toss it around. Is there anything, where is the, you know, where do we celebrate the, the founding of the state. Well, it, it's an interesting point. It's to, hard to that, say. Well, I mean, given that nobody wanted the free state, I mean, yeah. it, it, even the most passionate advocates of the free state on the pro-treaty side said, this isn't what this isn't what we fought for. Mm. I mean, this is what we're prepared to settle for and, and we're, we're looking to, to improve on it. Um, so so at the time, there was, there was very little enthusiasm, uh, besides because the Civil War was being fought, executions were, were taking place. So there was no celebration at the time on the day of the, the creation of the Free State. Uh, really, the first time that you have any great celebrations, in, in 1949, when the Republic has declared an Ireland leaves the Commonwealth, you have very substantial celebrations because ultimately it was regarded this this is genuinely delivering on, on what, what had been aimed for in 1916 and uh, in the War of Independence. Uh, in terms of the present government policy, what th- there's a recognition that, let's say, on, on the Fine Gael side of the house, clearly they, they regard themselves as the descendants of the pro-treaty side. Fianna Fáil regard themselves as being at least one of the branches of the descendants of the anti-treaty side. Sinn Féin regard themselves as being descendants of one of the other branches of the, the anti-treaty side. So there is general sort of the fact that you have Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in coalition means that there's agreement to mark the civil war, uh, but as, as it were, as a tragic event. Mm. Uh, and and to, to be non-judgmental in marking the, all the losses on both sides without necessarily saying that one side was right or the other. Uh, well, I think we've established in our conversation there was, there was no right or exactly, wrong, was there? Exactly, exactly. But now, in terms of ultimately the terminal date, you mentioned about the decade of centenaries. I mean, when is the decade going to end? It's very interesting that the, the government thinking is Ireland's entry into the League of Nations, uh, which happens in... Uh, 1923. It's not the end of the civil war. Uh, but it's when we're embraced. Well, it's ultimately when they argue that the, the delivery of the deliverance, at least partially on uh, on the vision of uh, when Ireland takes its place amongst the nations of the world, well, then we, and only then let my epitaph I be was written. just going to say, that's what I was going to say. Uh, it, 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 does Emmett's epitaph deserve to be written at that point or is it still in... Well, is it still I, I, on hold? Well, I, I think the, the engraver, his hand is ju- <laughs> he's just stayed. Uh, I mean, I, I think when the border goes, mm. and, I, and, I, and I, I, my own personal view is when the border goes mm. rather than if the border goes, mm. I think at that point, then you genuinely will have all sort of, the, you will have broad consensus as that it's taken a long while to get to this point, but ultimately this is where we, we want it to go. Whether the unionists agree to that or not is, is another matter. Uh, but but at the moment, well, it's... I mean, when you look at the, the the different constitutions, and you know, it's interesting. I I I kind of forgotten that that like the the provisional government, um, the the Republican doll was was a you know was a different thing. Yes. To the you know, it, so... it, but the term doll Aaron is still maintained. Yes. But clearly, it is a different entity, both in terms of its geographical. Because I remember history, there was the first doll. There was these terms yeah. when you'd learn. Well, it. you have the first doll between nineteen nineteen and twenty one. You have the second doll twenty one through to twenty two, which is the doll that negotiates or discusses the treaty. You then have the third Doyle, 
which is called the third doyle, but which that's the the, the doyle which ultimately uh, is the free state, the first free state doyle. There's a question as to whether it, it should be called a doyle. There's a question of whether it, in its earliest month it should even be called a parliament or should it be a constituent assembly because it's it's merely de- discussing the cons- the constitution mm. rather than having mm. the power to do yes. anything. Yes. Uh, so there, there's a lot of yes. sort of discussion about the, the technical terms that mm. you use to describe. But clearly there is there is a a, a very sharp break between the second doyle as it's called, mm. correctly, and, and the third door. But, you know, I suppose where I was going with that was to say, you know, you mentioned about would the unionists agree to it or whatever, but, I mean, the the it's it would seem to me that if there's to be an Ireland that's a one thing, it'll need to be rediscussed of course and reconstituted. Yes. Yes, of course And there will be further change yeah. inherent in that. Yeah. Uh, but ironically... That will, uh, that will, that will cause arguments. But, but ironically, that the unionists would probably be in a less strong position now than had they made the call a hundred years ago, precisely because the Southern Unionist body has has disappeared. And the the the, uh, the mix in the North would have shifted towards a Catholic majority, whereas a hundred years ago, the, the, the Protestant Unionist community were in a significant majority. So they're in a less strong they will presumably be if if and when it happens in a less strong position to negotiate terms now than they would have been a hundred years ago. Gabriel Doherty, thanks for the conversation again. You're welcome. You've been listening to a Red FM podcast. For more extra content go to redextra.ie